0: Liel, you are a man of many, many theories. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor, Stephanie Butnick.
1: Hello, good day.
0: Good day to you, madam. And Tablet Editor-at-Large, Liel Leibowitz.
2: A happy era of Israeli elections to you too.
0: That's the the monthly holiday that we all celebrate in the diaspora. Era of Israeli
2: elections. We and the Brits switch off on electing prime ministers. <laughs> Peppa Pig is going to be prime minister next week. By the way, yeah. <laughs>
3: I
0: just love. I feel it's the return of the proper received pronunciation, Toffs
2: accent. I mean, that guy is. It's a, that's a snooty accent he has. By the way, the most amazing thing. I think that every Jew will identify with. To elect a Hindu prime minister on Diwali, the community must be going absolutely nuts. It's it's as if the first Jewish president was inaugurated on Simchas Torah. Like this is a Song Yeah, I
1: was gonna say some gadalia. Make it make it more legit.
0: Right. Make it a real festive holiday. Today we're bringing you a conversation with Gentile of the Week, Faith Saley. She's a contributor to CBS Sunday morning and a panelist on NPR's Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. And now, after this blockbuster interview with Liel and Stephanie, that I was not privileged to be part of. One of the great thought leaders on what it is to have an interfaith family. She has a Jewish husband and two Jewish children. And Liel and Stephanie, like, they put it to her. They asked the tough questions. They took her places that CBS and even NPR don't take her. And I think for all of you who wrestle with such questions about how to raise children of any faith in a pluralist country where people are of so many faiths, this is a really important interview. It's some, It's some serious stuff. We also welcome back erstwhile Jew of the Week, Phil Rosenthal, creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, who joins us to chat about the new season of his Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil. Oh, and check your feed on Monday when we're going to drop a special Halloween mini episode. I'm not going to say more than just to give you these three words, Liel, horror films. Check your feed on Monday. Awesome show today. It's so good to be post holiday and just uh living in freedom and hosting a Jewish pod. Liel Leibowitz, has it been has it been good times for
2: you? What's going on, man? You know, it should really be a, a special blessing than we say after the Jewish holidays are over. Something like <laughs> let's please not do it again for another at least a year. <laughs> It is a long
0: slog, made no easier when one works in the Jewish media. But you know how I burst out of the Jewish bubble and shell that I've been living in for... How you, how you smashed down your sukkah and ran out <laughs> to the world at large. The way I, I did it in the most gentilic, the most, dare I say, goyish of ways. I was a scholar in residence for a couple days last week at St. Andrew's School in Delaware. Where, where the dead poets go to uh, be in the society of each other. Literally, if you've seen Dead Poets Society and remember that beautiful campus, the fall foliage, the lake on which the, the rowers rode in their skulls, where they tossed Robin Williams in the air, the castle-like buildings, the prep school to end all prep schools, it was filmed at St. Andrew's School in Delaware. It literally is It is the iconic Hollywood image of the prep school. Not all boys. It's, it is co-ed, but it is a super preppy Episcopal school. I say preppy as a compliment, obviously. And this school of 300 people, it's all boarding, which they insist on, no day students. Even if you live in town, you have to live there because they want to form that kind of community. They are super low tech, so they don't use email very much or texting. In fact, while students and teachers are allowed to have smartphones, they have to keep them in their rooms or their offices. You're not allowed to walk around with them. You're not allowed to take them to the dining hall or into class. So everyone is there with with notepads and pens. And the way they do announcements, and I was privileged to be there for this, is after dinner, the senior class presidents, a, a male president, and female president, both stand up. I think they might've banged some sort of gong or blown a whistle or something. Everyone in the room huddles together, 300 people in the dining hall sort of lean in. First, they announce everyone who has a birthday. And if you have a birthday that day, you get a standing ovation from the whole school.
2: <laughs> if you have a birthday, you get a pip, pip, cheerio.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then anyone who has an announcement to make, can stand up and come to the front of the room and make it, you know, pep rally tomorrow, acapella tryouts, Newspaper needs more contributors. Anyone who wishes to nail some thesis to the door of the cathedral is very happy to do so. It is, and, you know, then, so there was that. Then I spoke in chapel where the Jewish affinity group, the, you know, dozen or so students who participate in that group, the Jewish minority of the school, had put together, it was so touching, a Jewish chapel night. I mean, it's an Episcopal chapel. And on Sunday, apparently it's, you know, it's, it's very high church and Episcopalian. But Wednesday nights, they play with it a little bit. So the reading was from the Old Testament. Was
1: that in or, honor or, of
0: you? Or as we know it. The, the testament. Right, the testament. They, they It was in honor of me. They asked for some reading suggestions. And then the acapella group did a setting of Eretz Zavad Chalavu Divash, of a land of flowing with milk and honey. A setting of it I had never heard before, not the Nina Simone one that you'll find on YouTube. But it was all Jewy. And then I spoke. The next morning, I talked to some classes. The amount of love and I, I, I hate this word, but intentionality of this school where they live together and actually talk to each other. So it's like a Delaware kibbutz is what you're saying. I'll just conclude with this. And then I will leave this sweet, sweet memory and return to banal earth. At their formal dinners, every several nights a week, they stay in dress code, dress for dinner. Teacher sits at each of the long tables, a teacher or two. And a group of students who have been arranged, they're assigned their seats so that it's a smattering of first years, sophomores, juniors, and seniors. And they rotate such that over the course of the year, Pretty much every student eats with every other student and every faculty member. And they have to make conversation with each other. So the freshmen have to know the seniors, the juniors have to know the teachers. And I thought, this is this is how one ought to live. And then I got baptized and I'm <laughs> gonna be teaching <laughs> what um about to say? I'm gonna be teaching religion and philosophy at an Episcopal School in Delaware next year. It's been a it's been a great podcast. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm an Episcopalian prep school teacher.
2: Now. Yours, yours in Christ, Mark Oppenheimer. Just, just imagine now having a religion that actually makes you go somewhere every morning, where at least nine I know. other people have to and, be. That's amazing, right?
0: <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, that's been my, that's how I exited the Jewish bubble. Uh, I really jumped straight out.
1: Mark, I've had the reverse experience because last we all spoke, I told you about how moved I was about taking. Baby Edith, not a baby so much, but but taking 15-month-old Edith Cohen for her holiday services. And listener, I have been back to Temple with Edith many times. We went, we signed up for like a Friday class that I skip out on work to go with. Um it's we
2: learned Kamara for toddlers. Yes,
1: we learn about Shabbat. We start
2: the darim. We
1: learn about Shabbat. She Illustrated. Gets, she gets a piece of hala, her favorite food. She calls it Allah. Did I already say this last time? No, that's amazing. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) They give her challah each time. It's like the best gateway drug to Judaism. Like, it's amazing. "Ah, She loves it. We've been in a sukkah. She played with like a plush lulav and etrog for Sukkot. We went to a Simcha Torah, like dance party in the street. I've been to temple more in the past two weeks (laughs) than I think I have in like my adult life, which is crazy. And I love it so much. It's the sweetest thing.
0: There is something about entering. I mean, you grew up with more religion than I did, Stephanie. I grew up with very little entering it through my children when Rebecca was born and it was just going on Saturdays with her into the children's service and seeing it through her eyes. It is so intoxicating. I'm so jealous of you and Edith right now.
1: I mean, being with a child when they hear bim-bam for the first time and now she's said <laughs> bim-bam, bim-bam. She loves Shabbat Shalom. Hey, like there's such good easy melodies. And I'm just like, this is I, I, I mean, agree. I'm I'm all in at this Being point. Being with
2: a child when when he hears his first Bal Shemtov story. <laughs> there's really something to it. <laughs> when you give them their
0: first Nachman of Braslav Kipa, the white skull cap.
1: Yeah, and the question is like, what are we gonna do for Edith's first Som Gadalia? Right. I mean, where like where do we take what, her? What, what, what are we gonna do going
2: to not feed her <laughs> that day? <laughs>
1: So yeah, I'm just like I'm love, I'm I'm just in this this amazing haze.
0: Does this mean, by the way, Stephanie Butnick, that you have picked a shul? Because of course, all New no, York.
1: And am I joining a synagogue? No, <laughs> I want to be courted. I've said this on the record many many years. But maybe I'll do something where I go to like all the synagogues on the Upper West Side for children's programming and and rate them all. Yes, exactly. Who has the best bim bum yarmulke? Who wore it best? <laughs>
3: Of the
0: Jews news of the Jews okay so enough enough news of us what about the other Jews out there in the world? A lot of the jeosphere is talking about the former Mr. Kim Kardashian, Kanye West, or as he's now known, Ye, who apparently has been in the news. I last checked in with him when Gold Digger was on the radio all the time. Not sure what he's been up to. Apparently what he's been up to is hating on Jews Stephanie and Liel, catch me up on what exactly has gone on and how we ought to think about this.
1: Yeah, so so Ye has sort of had a lot of public appearances lately, and on all of them, he has said a lot of crazy anti-Semitic stuff. He sort of started his entree into this, this the canon of anti-Semitic propaganda when he tweeted that he would go, quote, Defcon 3 on Jewish people. That was a few weeks back. He has only <laughs> escalated his rhetoric since then, hitting the classic notes of like, Jews run everything and Jews ruin everything, I feel like, are his two major points.
0: Like, we run everything and we don't even do it well. That's right. We're controlling
2: the world and not well. Our food is bad in such small portions.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And since then, a bunch of brands have distanced themselves. Vogue has distanced themselves. Adidas just dropped him. He has that big collab with them where they do Yeezys. Partnerships are ending. He's now facing sort of like the public backlash to saying things. Some would argue that it came a few days too late, a few weeks too late. But now sort of he's going to feel the social and cultural side effects.
2: So look, let's first of all, get the obvious stuff out of the way. Obviously, what Kanye said was reprehensible. Obviously, he's having quite a few mental issues. I, however, don't care about any of that. I love Kanye. And I'm going to tell you precisely why. A very famous rabbi, Ludwig Wittgenstein, once said, you cannot follow a rule privately. You either believe shit or you don't. Now, if you really believe that what Kanye said the very particular strain of sort of black Israelite anti-Semitism that says blacks are the real Jews, Jews are imposters, Jews, to quote Louis Farrakhan, are the synagogue of Satan. They ruin and run everything, etc. If that bothers you, which it should, it really should, it has to bother you across the board. Up until like literally four days ago, no one seemed to care when that type of opinion was expressed in the most virulent ways, not just Bill Clinton standing right next to Farrakhan at Aretha Franklin's funeral, but when, for example, the rapper Jay Electronica dropped a verse with the lines, and I bet you a Rothschild, I get a bang for my dollar. The synagogue of Satan wants to hang me by my collar. Jay-Z was on that track, you know, Mr. Bay, right, the the, the, the husband of, of Beyonce, who we love and adore so much. And no one said peep. Although some Jewish journalists were like, what's wrong with you? When a black Israelite couple shot and killed several people in New Jersey, the New York Times in like paragraph four wrote, well, you know, it's a gentrifying neighborhood. And then went on to write these families. Many of them belong to the ultra-Orthodox Satmar sect created a budding community in Greenville, a residential area with a historically African-American population, and then went on to report that, well, you know, of course, murdering people is wrong, but also the community felt very agitated that the Jews were coming in. That was how black Israelite anti-Semitism was covered up until the moment in which this one person who recently took another mentally ill turn to Wearing MAGA hats and printing t-shirts and say white lives matter because he's clearly off his rocker, decided that he wanted in on the fun. So here's the thing. If you didn't care about this shit back then, you don't get to care about this shit right now. And and here's the bigger issue is like, I don't care about this shit at all for two reasons. First of all, I, like you, Mark, don't really care what any celebrity has to say about any political issue. I think Kanye is an absolute musical genius. He's American Mozart, and I would continue to love his music until the day I die. But second of all, and I think even most importantly, I'm, I'm a free person. This is what, you know, Zionism did to us, right? It's a Jewish liberation movement. I'm perfectly capable of defending myself. I don't need to, quote unquote, fear for my safety, like Reese Witherspoon, God bless her heart, suggested in her tweet to check in on all her Jewish friends and make sure they're okay. I could take care of my own business. And I just love people when they express themselves, even when they express themselves in ways that are reprehensible and terrible and wrong. Because you know what? To be a great artist, you need to go out there and have some crazy thoughts and say some crazy shit. Kanye is a free person and I love him for it.
0: Leo, I think we're substantially in agreement. I don't love Kanye. I don't know Kanye. I don't care about Kanye. But I do think that there is something a little bit tortured about the outrage right now. I'm upset about it for a different reason, which is that it all presumes that we should care a lot what celebrities think about politics. And I've said before and gotten some blowback, I've said, you know, I don't care what athletes think about politics. And then I've been taken to task by saying, oh, like they're just supposed to play sports and, you know, just shut up and dribble, right? Which is to say they're not allowed to have political consciousnesses. And that's not what I mean at all. What I mean is if athletes or anybody, hip hop artists or classical musicians or opera singers or curlers, educate themselves about a topic and become spokespeople about that topic. If they want to stand up for black power at the 1968 Olympics and and have something meaningful to say, then they should say it. But we are in a culture where so many celebrities have Twitter accounts or social media accounts. They have to use them. They get invited on a trillion podcasts, right? It's not the world of the 1950s or 60s where there were a dozen network shows that might invite you on. And if you were crazy, you didn't get on them. Now there's, there are infinite platforms. And all of these people want to take up as much oxygen as possible. And we feed that, we reward that by listening to what they say. And especially in this attention economy where we have so little time to read a novel or just watch a movie or stream a good show, the idea that there are people out there who are consuming tweets by Kanye or mediocre podcast appearances by Kanye and care what he thinks about my people, the Jews, yes, it's a problem that he's an anti-Semite, but it's also a problem that there are people who care that much. And I think we really have to, you know, we have to watch ourselves a little bit because I actually was walking through life pretty blissfully ignorant of what Kanye thought about the Jews or anything else, and uh, that was that was a pretty good way to live. I think we need I think we need more of that. Tweets by Kanye
2: is the new beats by Dre.
1: Here's the problem with with both of those things. You can ignore what he says, and you can say that actually what celebrities say doesn't matter. But he is a massively important, significant cultural figure who has this megaphone, and he's using it, and he's saying things about the Jewish media and Jewish Zionists. He's saying the Jewish community, especially in the music industry, they'll take us and milk us till we die. He's talking about me tooing the Jewish culture. I'm saying y'all got to stand up and admit to what you have been doing. He's espousing a lot of black Israelite ideology, which says, as we coincidentally spoke about a few weeks ago, believes that Jews aren't the true Jews um, and have sort of a series of problematic beliefs along those lines. I mean, he's saying a lot of really just gross things about Jews and money. And here's the thing people are listening, right? Have you guys seen these these images of of above the 405 in LA? The Goyam Defense League has these signs out that say honk if you agree with Kanye. And according to Twitter, people are honking when they go down those roads. So you can say that, yeah, you should be caring about this when other people on the other end of the political spectrum say this, though I do believe he did, Kanye recently said that Jared Kushner only did those deals in the Middle East for money. So he's sort of <laughs> bypassing all sorts of political lanes. But Right. But here's what happened. People agree with him. Like he's made it okay for other people to express that they agree with his beliefs. He's he's sort of offering this like weird cover for people to be like, yeah, Kanye is right. So to me, what's really disturbing is not that he's saying this right. And we, we have to obviously use the caveat that he has a history of mental illness and this might be related to that. It might not be. I don't know. But it's scary because he's he's reflecting something in the world right now. He's reflecting it. He's refracting it. He's allowing People I, to amplify I agree, their own I agree with that. And now, and
2: now let's see. And, and I say this with with no kind of malice and like, you know, jagged point, but like now let's see if we could have an actual discussion about black anti-Semitism, which seems to be something crossing, you know, from left wing to right wing in our traditional definitions. If this actually starts a helpful, healthy conversation, then it would have been worth it. Otherwise, it's just more partisan heckling. Well, We can't invite
0: Kanye onto our podcast to participate in that conversation because he's busy shooting the next Mel Gibson movie. So he will be, they will be tied up for a while. Called The Passion of the Kanye, (laughs) in which the Jews killed Ye. But this is in no way the most important news story of the week from the Jewosphere, Liel. Take us to Israel, where one of, you know, someone who's a true artist, not like Kanye, but someone who's right. a true. A, 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 a real Eloi, a real genius. was a serious, a serious Eloy, a serious genius. B- before, before I do,
2: Mark, yeah, pop quiz. What's the greatest television show of all time?
0: Well, I mean of this or any other century Beverly Hills 90210, right? That's Correct. that's why that's why we got hired because we both answered that question correctly.
2: And 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 if you had to pick one actor, one character who sort of embodies the spirit of of the 90210, it would be Well, the the neophyte would say Ian
0: Ziering, but you and I know that it is Ian Siring, who is uh as as he pronounces it who was really, he was the soul of the show. I think he was the the only original cast member who stuck around all 10 years, except maybe Mr. and Mrs. Walsh. So, I mean, he's he's the heart and soul of it all.
2: And he, Ian Ziering, Yosef Chaim Ben Zierinovich himself, <laughs> will be traveling, not to Israel, but to Greece to shoot the new season of Israel's hottest reality show, Called and and I have to do this with an accent because it just doesn't go anywhere. There. It is the show is called Goal Star. You know, Rockstar is not Rockstar. It's Goal Star because Goal like you score the goal in soccer with the feet, Ken, with the Ken. ball. Goal Star. So uh, the premise of the show is amazing. You take eleven celebrities, uh, mostly let's let's face loosely it, defined, very loosely <laughs> defined, uh, and you start a soccer team. <laughs> And then you have to play against like some other non-existent soccer teams in some <laughs> Fakak the league. And Ian Ziering is going to be the power forward or or the shortstop or whatever he's going to be of this soccer team, including a contractual obligation to arrive to the promised land itself for the premiere of the show, marking the greatest nine zero two one zero appearance since Jenny Garth and Tori Spelling were there to shoot a fashion campaign a few years back. This is obviously amazing.
0: Now. The real question is, is he still married to the former playboy playmate of the month who converted to Judaism before marrying him back in 1997? Because as a
1: couple... Well, the month was Cheshvan. That's right. Did I do that joke right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really hope the chief rabbinate, regardless of the fact, I don't presume her conversion was orthodox, but I
2: hope the chief rabbinate would grant them both a Heter make aliyah right away. If he's no longer with Miss Heshvan, I hope we could find him a nice <laughs> shidduch. In the original line. Maybe invite him for Shabbos. If you're listening in Israel, just just be a bench. Invite Steve Sanders. Invite Steve Sanders over for, for Shabbos meal. Take a tip from Mr.
0: Paul Anka. To stop those monsters, one, two, three. Here's a fresh new way that's trouble free. It's got Paul Anka's guarantee. Guarantee void in Tennessee. Just don't
4: look. Just don't look.
1: Just
0: out just out look, just out look, just, out look. just out look. Bill Rosenthal is the creator of the long-running sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. He sat down with Stephanie to talk about the new season of his Netflix show, Somebody Feed Phil, where he travels the globe to appreciate new foods. The sixth season is out on Netflix now, and his new cookbook is called Somebody Feed Phil, the book.
1: Phil Rosenthal, welcome back to Unorthodox. I'm feeling very unorthodox today. We're talking at a good time because it's the day after Yom Kippur. You've been doing a ton of publicity. I want to ask you a question that probably no one, Stephen Colbert, no one has asked you, (laughs) which is, what's your breakfast like?
3: Oh, I'm so glad you asked me (laughs) this, Stephanie, (laughs) because a lot of thought goes into it. First of all, before the fast, I went with my family to Fogo de Chao. You know what that is? I do not. A Brazilian churrascaria. They just bring over skewers of meat. You have a green disc on your plate that says, keep it coming, and if you've had enough, you turn it over, red light, stop, I can't anymore. It took a while for that red light to come up (laughs) for us, but we did it, and I had prearranged, because I live in Los Angeles now, for the Break the Fast To come to me via Gold Belly
1: from Russ and Daughters in New York. I knew you were going to say that. That is amazing. We have never been happier. So what's your move at the breakfast? Are you like an orange juice first guy? Do you go straight for the locks? Straight for the locks. Okay. And tell us about the bagel. Break down the bagel. The bagel has to be toasted. I now scoop it out, not because I'm diet conscious,
3: but because I can fit more of the good stuff in the bagel.
1: That we're like breaking news here. Yeah. Phil Rosenthal scoops the bagel. Have we talked about Sherry Herring sandwich? Yeah, so we, we interviewed Alex Edelman in Sherry Herring. I think he was <laughs> texting you while we were doing the interview. In Tel Aviv, they scoop out that baguette for the same reason
3: that I scoop out the bagel, because the ratio of fish to bread is better when you scoop it out a bit. It really does not only affect the texture of the sandwich,
1: but the flavor
3: of the sandwich.
1: It's incredible. They're actually probably friendlier at the one in New York than I think they are in any place in in Tel Aviv. I think that's a generalization you could make in every department. (laughs) I agree with that. And last time you were on, we talked a lot about the Tel Aviv episode of Somebody Feed Phil, which was season one. Now you're back for season six. Tell us where this takes you.
3: Oh, I can't wait for people to see this. this. is their best season. I'm not just saying that. There's something in this season That I've never done, but you'll understand why I did it as soon as I tell you what it is. It's a special sixth episode, a tribute to my parents.
1: Who were really a part of the show.
3: Yes, a big part of the show, of my life. And then the people who watched. I know they were the best part of the show. I say in the episode, uh, I know you people were
1: just sitting through my crap to get to them. For someone who hasn't listened, you know, you call them basically on almost every episode, right? Or FaceTime them? Every episode. Every single episode. People have this this connection to them and they really, really feel like they know your parents.
3: My mother would claim not to care about such things. Philip, I'm not really interested in that. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't even know why you want me on it. Until she'd be recognized in New York, walking down the street and people would freak out and she got such a kick out of it. You would see her just
1: light up, you know? Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, oh my. So what was it like for you to sort of go through that process and then also know that strangers felt connected to them as well as you were sort of mourning?
3: I think I loved it. I think I still love it. I think I love when people tell me how much they love them and their spirit stays alive. I don't think it's profound to say that they're alive as long as we remember them, right? So to have people remind me of them is beautiful. And
1: I love them for for liking my folks. And I think they would be really proud of Somebody Feed Phil the book, that you've turned the show into a book. So will you tell us a little bit about it?
3: The book is, I think, a very good companion to the show. It's got all the behind the scenes photos and stories. But what makes it valuable is we have 60 of the most requested recipes from the first four seasons of the show. And that makes it, I think, one of the better cookbooks in the world, not because of me, but because of the chefs from around the world we've gotten to meet, and who very generously donated recipes to. We also have almost all my parents' Zoom calls in script form because they play like dialogue from a funny play. And so I have that.
1: It's amazing. And I feel like you've really cultivated a connection with people who, you know, you were always a behind the scenes person and now you're front and center and people love you. This person who travels so open-mindedly. So like, tell us about being that person. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, you know, when I started in show business, I thought I was going to be an actor. I thought I was going to be a character actor because I love being funny around the house and then in school. And then the only legit way to not get thrown out of class is to be in the school plays. So I was, became a big star in high school. And then I was encouraged to study theater in college. So I did that. And I was a big star in college. And then I graduated and moved into New York City. And, you know, New York City they hadn't heard that I was a big star in high school. And so (laughs) I struggled for years, not understanding why people weren't just hiring me. And then I transitioned into writing and realized that instead of eating tuna fish every night for dinner, I could eat whatever I wanted if someone would buy my scripts, which they did a lot easier than them buying me as an actor. So for many years, I was a writer and I still am a writer. But This thing about being in front of the camera, I guess it was that transition when I was filmed for Exporting Raymond. That was my trip to Russia. The Russians had called me to turn my sitcom into Everybody Loves Kostya. And I kind of understood in the editing of that, I was editing this guy who was me, but I was able to disassociate myself and just say, that guy's funny there, or that guy's stupid there, or that guy's terrible there get rid of that, keep that. So somewhat objectively looking at yourself and then I realized, oh, I see a persona. I understand it. And this thing about traveling, I think I could do that. I think I could convince people to travel, which is a worthwhile mission.
1: So what's your favorite place that you go to
3: in season six? Oh, I'll tell you where we go. Have you been to Croatia? I have not. So I thought I was going to like some war-torn place like former Yugoslavia, Eastern European thing. And then you get there. And it's on the Adriatic, just like Italy. And it feels a lot like Italy. It's absolutely gorgeous. And there are many parts of Croatia that are like half the price of Italy. So we're actually leading off with that show because it's such a revelation. Then we do a few American cities because we were filming during COVID and was just, you know, there were certain places we actually couldn't go. But we didn't suffer at all because we went to some of the best American cities, Philadelphia, is one of the best food cities in the world right now. I know it's shocking to hear, but it's true. It's one of my favorite food cities ever, ever been. And then we went to Austin and Nashville, two of the most popular American cities in terms of young people moving there and their boom towns. And then we went to Santiago, Chile, which was absolutely gorgeous, set in the Andes Mountains, with 400 miles of coastline to, to give you some of the best seafood in the world.
1: And then the show about Helena Max. This is so exciting. Your show's back, your book's out, your podcast is up and running. The podcast, Naked Lunch. My
3: friend David Wilde was a writer for Rolling Stone. He writes uh, many award shows. He's written a lot of books about TV. So we became friends like 25 years ago, and we'd have these lunches with our friends. Uh, he would bring someone from the music business, I would bring somebody from comedy or from TV, and we'd have these lunches. And i always say, we should have recorded this. And now we are recording it. And that's the podcast. We have lunch and talk to our friends. But our friends are people like, you know, Elaine May (laughs) and uh, Jimmy Jam and Lindsey Vaughn. I mean, a very wide and disparate collection of people.
1: We're hosting a Jewish podcast. I obviously want to make everything Jewish. But to me, this idea of like connecting through food, that does seem to be like a foundational Jewish thing. Does that sort of inspire you in any way? Do you think that's sort of at the root of this?
3: Yes. But let me tell you something and I'm Jewish, we don't own that. Every single culture I meet in the world connects over food. And every single culture thinks they eat more than every other culture. Every single one. You go to Chinese personnel, oh, now you're really going to eat. Oh, Greek person, Oh, you're, there's no space between the dishes on our table. My friend Ray Romano is Italian. And he has a, a bit where he says, if you don't want any more at the table from my mother, you're going to have to shoot Every single culture on the earth values and loves food. Loving food brings us together. Here's what I always say. Food is the great connector and laughs
1: are the cement. Phil Rosenthal, thank you so much for coming back on Unorthodox. Season six of Somebody Feed Phil comes out October 18th. There's a book release. There's tour dates all across the country. And then, of course, there is the Naked Lunch podcast. Our listeners should check out all of that. Phil, thank you so much.
3: What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Stephanie.
1: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Our Gentile of the Week today is someone who I first met when she interviewed me, actually right here in this very office. It was for CBS Sunday Morning, and Faith Saley was talking to me about hamantaschen on Purim. Since then, she and I have struck up a series of fascinating conversations about her life and her family. We wanted to invite her on the show to turn the microphone around and ask her a few questions. We had a fascinating conversation about her Catholic upbringing and the Jewish family that she is raising today. We were so excited to talk to Faith that we forgot to make sure her microphone was working properly, so her sound isn't crystal clear on this interview. However, her brilliance shines through anyway. Faith, Saley, welcome to Unorthodox. First of
4: all, I want to say, I've been planning to say this, ready? Long-time Catholic, first-time Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so... So excited to be here, and you know I usually interview people. Yes, and I host a podcast too. two. Of course, so you will have to stop me from take like I have questions <laughs> I'm dying to ask you, and I have things that I feel like need to be. Oh please, but it's your show. We're
2: very lazy, so we were very happy. I like to that you prepared for over. this
1: interview, even though you're not the interviewer. You have notes. Okay, I just want to say that we first met in this same place, in the same office. You interviewed me for CBS Sunday Morning. You made me. You made me the most famous I've ever been and will ever be by being on your show for Purim. So thank you. I want to thank you.
4: Thank you. Because you were the sine non of that common tasha I was like
1: yeah. the jam in the center. Yes.
4: <laughs> and then we yeah, oh, you and I go back I many, like we have a very fancy Our
1: right.
2: meet cute was very fancy. On the,
4: like some main stage in LA.
2: Correct. Hanging hanging with the mayor. Which, by the way, was so, I have to tell Can a Tell story. us what, what's happening. we at
4: the backstage...
2: Backstage of this theater, because we're both telling stories for The Moth. And Faith brings this dude, and this dude is a good looking dude. He's talking about LA, and I'm telling him how much I love LA. And I'm, I'm saying LA is the greatest city in America. And he says, Well, you know, I'll be really happy if you moved here. And I said, Well, you know, my wife hates it. And he looks at me and says, You should divorce her. And I look at him, I say, Dude, we just met. This is kind of a harsh <laughs> thing to say. And he says, It's okay. I'm the mayor. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, your wife and I agree on that. L.A. was not a good... It was a bad boyfriend to me. I moved to New York and, and got and got my love. And my Jewish husband, John, with an H. Wow.
1: Ooh. It's just
4: more... Everything about our family's Judeo-Christianity is just common.
2: So much to get to. But speaking of Judeo-Christianity, Stephanie, mm-hmm. describe what Faith is wearing. <laughs>
4: because this is Faith? a lot. So you're good.
1: wearing an amazing sweater... With Ruth Bader Ginsburg's face emblazoned on it, embroidered on it. It's, it's beautiful. It's
4: actually called, and I'm using air quotes, an ugly Christmas sweater.
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Ruth Bader
4: Ginsburg, of course, not ugly. Right.
1: That's true. And then above it, you have a beautiful big cross necklace.
4: So I, I mean, I am a, a prop comedian. I have no shame. I did wear this on purpose for, for you. <laughs> it's like the combo. It's cold enough today. This is the last birthday gift we gave my mom before she died, when she was only two years older than I am now. Mm -hmm. And she died in the month of October. And so I like to wear this cross in October. It's just my, you know, there are so few grieving rituals, even though it's been 25 years. So it's just it's my thing in October. I wear this cross. I usually wear it under my clothes, but I think it has a certain panache to wear the cross over RBG.
2: So we'll start we'll start strong. Uh, Let's start with death then. So As you look at us through your husband and and his family and his tradition, do you look at our grieving rituals and think like, man, these guys have something for every occasion. These guys have it all
4: pat. The only thing I know about Jewish grieving rituals is Shiva. And I am not alone in thinking it's just a magnificent, superb, incredible community-based thing. I love the idea of a, a very public grieving. I mean, when my mom died, there's there's a there's a wake, there's a lot of praying, and that feels very specific and private. And so, educate me. Are there lots more ways Jews grieve?
2: Oh, there are a lot more ways. Oh, wait,
4: then there's like the only a year later, you wait a year to bury to put the casket in. What is it?
2: I just love that we just went straight, straight to, to death. death. There is literally kind of a timeline, and it begins the moment you hear the news. So the moment you hear the news. You go into a special category called Onin, and literally you don't have to do anything. The assumption is you're in complete shock. You're so like every commandment, it's like you are exempt, you just be alone with your grief.
4: It's like a it's like a spiritual out of office Correct. as long as I'm <laughs>
2: exactly. Email. I love it. Everyone idea. understands that and and sort of creates space for you to like go be wild with with your grief, right? Then Judaism also very wisely teaches. You may not, the, the Hebrew expression is Asur en la the, the dead body may not spend even a night out of the grave. The burial has to be immediate. When my grandmother passed away, I missed a funeral because everyone, including the soul of the departed, needs to start the process right away. You can't be in this interim state. You need the closure.
4: There's never an open casket walk I, by a dead Jewish ab- person?
2: Absolutely not. It's, it's immediate.
4: So morticians must not like the You clean (laughs)
2: clean the grandma's
4: faces. We
2: have our own society called Hebra Kedisha that cleans the body. It does it immediately, takes it, cleans it, prepares it for burial.
4: I have to have you pause because I, I, by the way, I love your show. And when you start talking like this, like this is what Jews do, do all Jews do this?
1: No.
2: I would say with death, yes. You think? With death, with death is absolute. Do
4: you have to get the Jew in the ground or can't I, you know, I know turn th- that Jew into ashes?
2: You cannot turn him into ashes under any circumstances. Ground, and? Why? the hardcore uh, is from dust you came and to dust thou shalt return. Right,
4: but ashes to ashes, dust. Wait, is that Old Testament or new? Ashes to ashes, dust.
2: We, that's old. Because uh, oh,
4: okay. yeah. to me, it's very Lenten, right? When I, If I go mm-hmm. to church on sure. Lent, I get the cross on my forehead. I have a huge forehead, big cross.
2: <laughs> I'm so jealous of those crosses, by the way. Every Ash Wednesday I look at it, be like, that is so cool.
4: It's very performative, actually. It's lovely. <laughs> but here's the thing. My understanding of Judaism, which is both more expansive than most people would think. And sometimes I'm asking my husband, like, why don't you know this and I know a little? Right. But also very, very limited, is that the Jewish notion of heaven or hell, or you certainly don't even have purgatory afterlife, it's not, it's, it's not a very um Here's the question. Why are Jews concerned with how soon you enter the ground and to make sure that you're not turned into ashes if you're not thinking about where the soul resides in an afterlife?
2: Oh, that's a good question. First of all, we do. What's it called? Sort but, of, kind of, the world to come. Oh,
4: my gosh. That's such a cop out. You know? It's like when editors write TK. But,
2: <laughs> but here, that's right.
4: You yeah, know. yeah. We're going to
1: that
2: TPD.
4: Heaven. Yeah.
2: At a later date. But here's the thing. It's actually really smart. We don't want you thinking about it, because you know what happens when you think about it. Life becomes a long exercise in arithmetic. Was I good? Good enough to merit being like? Can I do a bunch of bad things and then buy like carbon (laughs) footprint points to like offset all the bad things? Right,
4: indulgence. Don't don't think like this.
2: The only thing that matters to you right now. You'll never understand creation or what happens after your demise. Focus on being here now. Focus on the things that you actually do. Right. No, that's exactly right. Well, see, that's... What I
4: wanted from you right there was a pause and like astonished approbation. But you but do you do you understand? See my cause I don't get it from my husband. Do you understand how how cool it is that someone raised very, very Catholic in the South, so not Jews, not a ton of Jews, can just
1: I can pull out. Yeah, you're dropping Tikkun Olam on a Jewish podcast. I,
2: I like, that. like that It's in, crazy. This is why you didn't get more from, I think, because we're us in New York right now. No, because I would say that in every single instance, at least that I know of, of of a no pun intended interfaith couple, it is always the non-Jewish spouse who not just knows more, but, like, knows a whole lot more. And but, like, cares more. usually is a lot more. Like, if you want to have the serious conversation about Judaism and Jewish faith, like, go to the person who wasn't raised Jewish.
4: That's interesting. It doesn't necessarily apply in our case. I am absolutely fascinated. And just by nature, I'm curious about everything. And I will also note that my mother, who intended to be a nun until my father, she went to a little all-women's college called Notre Dame, in Maryland, mm-hmm. not Notre Dame. And my father... Also Catholic, sneaked into the dance, the mixer, and pointed to the girl in the yellow sweater set and said to his friend, That's the girl I'm going to marry. So her nun plans got derailed. But my mother, also insatiably curious about religion, I would come home from school and the Jehovah's Witnesses would be trying to leave. (laughs) She was never evangelical. She never, she was actually fascinated with Judaism. And um, she was a CCD teacher, which is like Sunday school. Mm -hmm and love the old testament. She would always say if I if I wasn't going to be Catholic, I wish I would have been Jewish. And we would have matzah, passover and when I went to college she got her masters in comparative religion, but I'm the same. Like I'm I'm fascinated by all faiths. So so that's why I come into Judaism, but I am often asking my husband, what does this mean? So I don't know more, but I'm occasionally frustrated that he doesn't know more. <laughs> and but I should also say he knows a lot. It's just he he was raised very um not his parents were the least spiritual people you'll ever meet.
1: Like it was the wallpaper and he wasn't super curious. I think a lot of Jews are like that. You're like, yeah, I know this and this. And then you come in and you're like, wait, this Why? is all new. Why? Oh Why?
4: Gosh. Just two weeks ago, it was, um, was Rosh Hashanah two weeks ago or one day. Feels it, like His mom a was month. over and I said, Shana Tova. And John said, it's Loshana Tova, right? There's that L And I said, well, what does the L mean? And my mother-in-law said, "Well, it means happy New Year." I said, "No, like I wanted it broken down. If you say Shana Tova, what does that mean? And what is the L apostrophe?"
1: I have to say, I think both are totally fine, and I think if someone's like, "Excuse me,
2: faith is more correct." Oh, the la is just just like a French text. Text the mother-in-law. French affect. Yo, I
4: wanted to get granular. What is the difference? What is the L apostrophe? Two. Like
2: le Shana Tova. Here's to a happy New Year. That's it. You could say it. Sure, it's not incorrect. But the actual expression,
1: uh, you
4: were right. And, but to your point, Stephanie, you wouldn't think to ask that. Yeah. Like, who cares? Yeah. Happy New Year. Yeah. And, and then I come in with like, like I actually, every time we do sh- um, uh, sh- Shabbat, I was about to say <laughs> Shabbat. Um, Shabbat, um I was about to say Sabbath, actually. Uh, and which, by the way, oftentimes doesn't happen on a Friday. And in our home means getting my husband's grandfather's Yiddish. pot. Kiddush. Kiddush, Kiddush. Kiddush. Mm-hmm. Kiddush is, Kiddush is for dead mm-hmm. people. Jeez. So much.
1: It, oh, you just want to go Am back you? to the death stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Not just by the way, for the I dead have people. to say,
1: everything is a little confusing. Like, why is Kiddush and Kiddush? and Kiddush? And Kiddush, yes. Because it comes from the same roots. Kiddush and Kiddush. And by
2: the way, what do we do? What what, are the, what does this root mean? It means sanctity. We do it because we sanctify. The Kiddush is a prayer that sanctifies the name of God. We do Kiddush to sanctify the Sabbath. And it's
1: then Kiddush? also...
2: No. Kiddush is the, the sort of Ashkenazic Yiddishist expression, like form of pronunciation. But. Kiddush. In Hebrew, in Israeli Hebrew, it would be kidush.
4: See, it's, it's confusing. The point is like when John and the kids sing the prayer, which I sort of, I try, I try mm-hmm. to sing. I'm always like, wait, slow down. I want to hear every <laughs> syllable because I want to learn it. And I want to know what every syllable means. And my husband sometimes says well i don't know i know the sense of it i don't know what they all mean and i'm like and why are we praying this and why am i raising these children jewish
2: can i tell you an amazing story yes which i i think will delight you because it, it put you in very good company the greatest rabbi of all time right the goat the mvp rabbi akiva the, the person mentioned more in the talmud than any other rabbi this guy was it was a shepherd until he was 40. a literal shepherd who did not know how to read or write uh the daughter of the wealthiest guy in jerusalem looks at him, says, I see something special in you. If I marry you, will you go study? He says, yes. Her father disowns her. Long story. He goes to study. He sits with his two teachers, the two most famous rabbis of the time. Then he <laughs> says, teach me something. They teach him something. He comes back 10 minutes later. It's like, I want to know what every letter, not every word, every letter means. Why is this letter here? And the Talmud goes and tells, they were completely stumped. They were silenced because his his way of understanding and approaching it, your way of understanding and approaching it was like the highest level of Talmudic genius.
4: That is very generous. What I come with is an absolutely blank slate and curiosity. And on top of all that, wanting to know on behalf of my children, because if I made this commitment to you that we can raise our kids Jewish, however that means, and we're always figuring it out. My husband and I are always figuring it out in real time. And real time is getting snappier because my son is 10. And like, is there going to be a bar mitzvah or is there not, right? This is a family conversation. So when I come to to Judaism and my when I interact with Judaism, my questions are also infused with like, on behalf of my children and the putative faith in which they are being raised, what does this all mean?
1: But the thing that's so interesting to me about what you're saying is I think it's true of a lot of Jews that I don't know what. A alarm means, but I, I can you know sing along or hum along or to the melodies. I know them, but it is true, and and it almost takes someone like you to point it out. Which is like, oh, I, I maybe I should know what these song, these prayers, these songs mean.
4: I understand that from my point of view because I was raised very effortlessly Catholic. Both parents were super Catholic. It is only now, on the extremely rare occasions, I go to a mass, and I was just doing a story for CBS Sunday Morning in a monastery two weeks ago. So this mass was, I mean, Gregorian chants, 20 wow. brothers. It was amazing. And and it is only now in the middle of my life where I'm hearing the words of the prayers and thinking about what they mean, mm-hmm. because I just genuflected. I did the sign of the cross. I got my first Holy Communion. And they it wasn't ex- it wasn't broken down to me in, a, in any other way than this is what my parents did. And this is what everybody wrote. And, and, and what was that
2: like? For you? Okay. So you come sort of like you have your, your teshuva, your return home, so to speak, like, to actually to reflect in this. see there's so many great
4: words. Yeah, that's a good means
2: literally means return. It's a but good that's, high holiday. That's word. a Hebrew word for repentance, which is interesting. Oh, How do you repent? God. You return to who you truly are, which is a good person. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. You you go to this to this monastery, you hear those chants, and here you are um wrestling with a different faith, right? On on behalf of your family and your children and, and your place in this marriage.
4: It's very submissive wrestling. That, that the word you choose, I, I I love it. Like wrestling suggests some kind of struggle. There's no struggle? I I love this exercise of figuring out what faith and Judaism means to our family. So I, I guess there's a slight struggle, but it doesn't feel like a negative struggle. Oh,
2: sure. What does it feel like? How do you reconnect to, to these Catholic thoughts and feelings after thinking for so long so intensely about Judaism?
4: It was, I love that word, which I already forgot, which means returning home. To Teshuvah. Teshuvah. My own personal faith, and whatever remnants of Catholicism are left in it is completely inextricable from my memory of my mother. And so the kind of religion I got as a child was very warm and open-hearted. And as I've grown older, I've seen all organized religions from a lens of so many of them being exclusive, hateful, self-righteous, very much including the Catholic church. I have so many problems with the faith in which I was raised, not least. And my mother did too, right before she died. Her, her beloved son came out to her in the 90s. And this was when, you know, I'm older than you, Stephanie. When, when we were growing up, I'm probably older than you too. Um, AIDS was like, a, you, you kind of thought if someone was gay, they might die of AIDS. Like it was almost a, an equation. So when my mom's son, who had chosen to go to Georgetown over Harvard because he wanted a Jesuit education, came out to her and said, I'm gay, And my mother had been living her whole life with this message that 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 gay is unnatural and frankly wrong. And in the eyes of some very religious people, her whole world flipped like God made my beloved son this way. There can't be anything wrong with this. And by the time my mom died. And again, she was she was like just turned 53. She was I think she was planning to convert to or start going to the Episcopal Church because she also wanted women to be priests and to be able to be married. And so. My evolution with Catholicism has been to to pick the things that make me feel like I'm coming home. And again, part of coming home is a connection to my mother I was so young when I lost her.
2: And it's fascinating because now you are the mother who has to who has to navigate these same waters on behalf of your children.
4: Exactly. And and the thing the I would say the only thing that causes me heartache and tug about what I'm not giving my children is my experience of Catholicism, i mean it's 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 incense it's the magical it's magical now that i have a master's in literature and i'm raising jewish kids i realize like stories are crazy when i explained what easter meant to my kids as they're eating jelly beans and like by the way this has no connection to jesus mm-hmm. christ and, and in my religion people believe that. Jesus was a man, but he was also the son of God, so he was God and a man at the same time. And then he died on a cross, and when he was dying on the cross, he collected everybody's sins so that when he died, he could rise again like a superhero. And then also, when we all die, we rise again. But there are three different places you can go. You know, like, it's crazy stories that I grew up thinking were just the way it was. But the moments of, like, transcendent faith, the... Kneeling down when I was a child and hearing the bell ring and thinking that the Eucharist might be actually transubstantiating, the the just the the beautiful Latin songs, the sign of the cross, holy water, holy water. My, I think my kids think holy water is really cool, um and they and they go into churches and do the sign of the cross. And my husband doesn't mind. We, we always say we'll take blessings from anywhere from <laughs> anyone who wants to give them, and we'll give them out anywhere. And so I do miss that experience, and and I'm sorry to liken it to believing in Santa Claus, but it kind of is, like, that childhood experience of faith, which also is, like, magical and transcendent, and my kids will never have a First Holy Communion, and they'll, you know, they don't won't get to choose, like, a confirmation name and a saint, and I, and even though I now have the lens to see how kind of crazy a lot of it is, um, and how screwed up the Catholic Church is, I still I still feel sad that they'll never feel I don't think they'll have a coming home the way I do when I kneel down, make the sign of the cross and like go up to get communion, even if I don't even believe in all of it. Does that make sense at all?
1: That's an amazing articulation of I think how so many of us feel about these things we can't quite understand, but we grew up doing, which is like when you go to someone else's Seder, you're like, this isn't right. This isn't how I've done it you use a different book wait no no you're supposed to use this Like, and it's these you realize it's actually the peculiarities of your own specific experience and I think on this show we do this thing where we're like are Top Sheets Jewish my family like these things our families did we almost try to say like that must be a Jewish thing but we're actually like no that's just my family thing and so what I, I want to say to you is that this grappling that you and John with an H are doing is actually creating that for your kids in a totally different way but in a way that they will feel the same about You know, like the way you come back to those memories, they're going to be like, remember we debated what
2: all these things mean? I see you this and and I raise you. We you're absolutely right. You know, we designed a religion precisely to avoid this kind of aha moment under the premise. And I'm speaking in very broad generalizations here under the premise uh, of the the ancient religious principle of easy come, easy go. It's really easy to feel really enchanted. It's also really easy to feel disenchanted because something doesn't go your way. It's like, well, where is Jesus when I needed him? And then I'm I'm no longer feeling this, you know, smells and bells moment in the church. And I'm sort of kind of like, oh, OK, so I'm, I, I don't feel holy right now. Judaism's logic, which I personally admire, is like your feelings don't really matter. You cannot believe in God. It's completely fine. Here's what you have to do. You have to do things because the things that you do define you and more importantly they define your community they define how you stand in the world so don't believe in God if if that's not what's in your heart that's okay but give charity because you have to do it and that creates kind of an environment around you that is great so I I love think, right it's not magical faith,
4: and faith alone as my, I, I absolutely love my name and I love the story behind it but that that isn't enough. You and and I also I always did wonder like okay so you can sin as much as you want and then go confess blank slate like what about all the, the the disaster you left in your wake right and every time my head gets too crowded with too many questions of what does it all mean and where am I going and what am I teaching my children about God I love that phrase to come along and can I say where I finished it? please
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> our Rabbi <laughs> Rabbi Matthew <laughs>
4: Yeah. Like my husband spent a couple hours. I, I went on a walk with Mandy's wife, Catherine. They are dear friends. And we went on a walk and John and Mandy were getting to know each other, sitting by their pool as one does. It was about two hours. And I, I and I asked John later, what did you talk about? He said, we talked about Judaism. I said, the whole time. And he said, yeah, I talked to Mandy about how I don't, because we don't have, we, I'm going to say we don't have a synagogue, a shul, same, same word. Yeah. Is that the same thing? Yeah. And Mandy and Catherine have this beautiful place that they love going to. And John was saying how he doesn't know what it means to him to raise Jewish children, right? He's got his own journey. And when Mandy said to John, the thing I just keep coming back to is, if you have all these questions, like you were just saying, if, if you just keep coming back to heal the world, because that's what you can do. That's what you can do today, just by connecting with someone being kind." But I had never heard, I mean, I was 50 years old. I had never heard that phrase. And then I said, well, John said he explained it to me. It's, it's tikkun olam. And now I'm obsessed with that. I, mean, I want to unfreeze my two embryos and name them tikkun olam. Like, it's a great phrase.
1: No, and I think tikkun olam is something that almost... It's manageable. Yeah. And so f- for people who don't know, can you give us...
2: I'll give you an explanation and a warning. Uh, they literally mean repairing the world. Uh, but the phrase appears, the, the, there's a there's second a, half to it, which is Bimal uh, khut repairing the world, Onto or restoring the world onto the kingdom of God. The idea being you don't want to just say, oh, repair the world, which is sadly how too many well-intentioned people use it because everyone wants to repair the world. I mean, the most terrible people in the world believe that they're doing the terrible things that they're doing in order to repair the world according to their fucked up vision, right? You want to repair the world according to a very specific set of rules that was sort of tried and true for many, 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 many years and actually puts kind of brakes on some of your absolute worst appetites, uh, lack of inhibition, etc. You want to kind of try to unlock the better inner you and mm-hmm. prepare the world according to a specific tradition and also do it collectively. The, the most amazing thing I, I think I, about Judaism is dominion. You know that word? That's it's, the take home for today.
4: It, isn't it like a quorum? Like mm-hmm. a certain number of
2: people? Ten. Why, why, why ten? Because ten, you're guaranteed that there are at least three assholes that you can't stand. So every morning you have to go there. Think of the genius. Like it's one thing to say, oh, I really believe in community. Not with this guy who totally has opinions I hate. Not with that guy who like smells a bit weird. Not that guy who pff, I really think is just weird. But in general, in theory, I want to repair the world with this community. Nah, says Judaism. You go and you stand with these humans every morning. Not alone with these people. Guaranteed you don't like some of them. Do it again and again and again. That's repairing the world.
4: This is like on the your recent episode where you called the rabbi with whom you definitely disagree.
2: That's right. We don't have the privilege of saying, "I'm sorry, I just don't like you."
1: I will say, I've always had a lot of respect for like interfaith relationships because, and I may have said this on the show. Ben and I are both Jewish. When we were getting married, it was like, okay, who's going to marry us? Okay, like maybe a rabbi, maybe a cantor, who's sort of like the person who sings in the synagogue. We're not Shabbat observant, so it has to be someone who's comfortable with doing a service that ends around sundown during Shabbat technically. So like, it sort of winnowed the field in that way. Mm-hmm. But if I actually had to say at that moment, here's what I believe in and here's what's important to me, which I think you and John probably did have to do at some point, right? Like Christmas tree or no Christmas tree or like what— I don't know what I would have said being pushed to have that conversation then. such a gift. And it's a, yeah, it's a really amazing thing. You have to, it forces you and both of you to articulate what's important to you and what, what's and
4: not. From the beginning, when, when we were dating, and John said, would, would you be willing to raise kids Jewish? And I, that was not a hard decision for me. For, uh, for it, That was very easy for me to say yes, I, I would. And then he said, would you consider converting? And I, I paused. it wasn't a long pause. But I paused, and having grown up in Georgia around lots of, almost all Protestants, lots of Baptists, you hear this phrase, my relationship with Jesus, right? There's a lot of, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but people talk about their relationship with Jesus. And I never thought of that phrase, uttered it ever. And when John asked me that, I actually realized I had some kind of relationship with Jesus, like status undefined but I was not going, I was not going to give that up. And, and, but there was no problem with that for us. So I said, no, I would, I would be honored to raise Jewish children and figure out what that means. And I will retain my identity, whatever it means to me, which is, it it is also always shifting Of of what it means to be Christian. Because when you're raised pretty Catholic, like it's not totally like being Jewish, but there isn't, there's like a Ethnic social component. I mean, Catholics have their own 100%. have their own, uh, you know, shibboleths. Maybe mm-hmm. you, say. Um, you know, like like my aunt Judy when she when she curses, she's like "Sweet Redeemer," just from Boston, or "Jesus Mary and Joseph of Arimathea." You know, <laughs> and like you only get that when you're Catholic. And and but then every bit along the way, we're figuring out what it means, and I love it, and it's only additive. And the first time. That we ever got a christmas tree my husband was so joyful <laughs> he loves it so much of course. and the first time <laughs> and, and, and by the way like it's part of the bigger picture of our family like our family is now because of john is now jewish and christian it's it's black and white because i have black nieces and nephews it's gay and straight every bit we are different makes us more interesting and my kids will say well they identify as jewish again I think they have a lot of questions about what that means, which I would like to dig into with them. But they'll also sometimes say, well, we're half Christian. So the math doesn't add up because they're wholly Jewish <laughs> and have Christian, but they like that little, they're just a little bit different than everybody else. Look, I think I Love think that. Every,
2: every couple, honestly, is an interfaith couple. My wife and I are both Jewish.
4: But would you have married someone who wasn't?
2: No, absolutely not. But I married someone who is very but, Jewishly but, different.
4: But like if John had ever said, I, won't, I will not marry her unless she's Jewish, or if I had ever said, I will not marry someone unless he's Christian, the loss to the richness of our lives is, you can't quantify it.
2: Like, I understand that completely. Look, I, I really don't want to shy away from from the difficulty of this conversation. What's difficult? Here, here's the difficulty for me. Uh, there is a certain attitude in our community towards interfaith couples, you will hear language very frequently like the silent Holocaust. I'm not joking, right? That's horrible. The fact oh that people gosh, marry out. Right. I think that's abominable. Uh, I think that the more people we could uh, welcome into our community, especially people who are raising their children in in this loving, open way, you could have halachic questions about who is considered, according to Jewish law, who's considered Jewish, who's not considered Jewish. I leave that To the rabbis right but the point is this in my mind you also balance this with an urgent understanding of the fact that these traditions that we cling to they have been the key to our survival they're not flimsy uh, and they have been tested again and again and again by being in contact with really great bigger cosmopolitan universalist cultures right We were there debating with the Greeks who were amazing. We were there with the Romans who had great ideas and and entries in civilization. We persisted, if if I may, because we clung to a very distinct definition that has kept us alive when much bigger peoples faded and and kind of disappeared into the ether. The fact that this morning, uh, just an hour and a half ago, I prayed in the exact same words, that my ancestors prayed, I don't know, 1,700 years ago, is astonishing to me. You only do that if you preserve tradition in a very, 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 very strict way. On the flip side, tradition becomes ossified and meaningless unless it brings in new people into the fold, new ideas, grapples with new real-world sensibilities, opens up where it can, and answers why it can't open up in the realms where it can't. So this tension to me is the central tension of Jewish life throughout history. And I, I love it. I think it's an, an amazing thing, not something to shy away from.
4: So one of the hallmarks of your show is how uh, nuanced and respectful and irreverently reverent all of your conversation. I love this conversation. And I don't even know if, I'm a, if if it's right for me to say I disagree with you in some ways because you have, you're Jewish and you have all the no, knowledge. I could say live it. it forever. So a couple things when you said you leave it to the rabbis to decide who's Jewish. Mm-hmm. I don't. My children are allowed to say that they're Jewish. And anyone when, when, when is I think this is the time of the year when the Jewish guys on the street, are they the mitzvah guys? Mm-hmm. They'll walk up and they'll say, are you Jewish?
2: Every every time of the year is that I time of the year. I love
4: saying to them, no, but my kids are. Because you can see the smoke on <laughs> it. it makes no sense to them. Mm-hmm. And like, with all due respect to your religion or anyone's religion, my children's ancestors died in the Holocaust because they were Jewish. My children are damn well Jewish and I do not care if anybody. And then there were people who would say, like, oh, if I converted, like shiksa conversion, like uh, like they still wouldn't be Jewish enough. Like my children get to say their they're Jewish, not a rabbi.
2: Can I tell you a story that you would love? Uh,
4: yes, I'll tell you one story then you tell me yours. It's very moth like, like a moth wrote My husband was at a some kind of meeting in San Francisco once, it was, it was some Jewish. And there were Orthodox Jews talking about who gets to be Jewish and who's not. And a very elderly man went up to the mic and challenged them. And they told him he wasn't Jewish. And the man shoved up his sleeves and showed him his number from, from being in the concentration camps. And he said, you tell me I'm not Jewish. And so people's faith journeys, I think, do not get to be dictated by, by anyone.
2: I agree with you a million percent. First of all, I want to make a very strict distinction between people's faith journeys, uh, which is something that I not only respect, but delight with and think that under under every circumstance, under any circumstances, all circumstances should be should be joyous and should be cheered on and should be made easier. I do think, again, that there is a larger question of of sort of canonical religion, religious law, because religion is, by definition, you know, more than a feeling as the song goes. But I want to tell you a story that I've always delighted. Uh, In the 60s, there was a guy named Brother Daniel. He came to Israel and he said, I uh, hear that all Jews can immediately, under the law of return in Israel, all Jews could get a citizenship. I wish to become a citizen. And they looked at him and said, your name is Brother Daniel. You are a, a monk of some sort. Like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, no, no. All cool. I was born a Jew. But then I converted. I'm now practicing, you know, Catholic. I would like my my citizenship, please. And they had to sit and debate for a very, very, very long time. And the decision was surprising because the decision came in, in, in my most favorite piece of trivia related to the story was one of the greatest orthodox american rabbis at the time said look think of for example the promised land before the israelites entered it could we say it was just a land could we say it was just barren hills because they didn't come and make it holy no obviously there was something there that made it very special and he said therefore we are to learn that even though we have very strict definitions which have been debated and affirmed throughout the centuries we have to understand that in people's souls there is a process that goes on that cannot be neglected and cannot be ignored because people go through different things and those feelings those journeys those emotions are supremely meaningful even if they don't correspond to whatever the strict letter of the law says which is amazing because that is an instance in which the actual religious interpretation was much more kind of amorphous, accepting, loving than than what the law of the state had to say. And so I love that. I, I do want the rabbis to continue and debate those questions of law. But at the same time, I would like to live in a community that looks at people like your children and not for one second questions or doubts or puts any asterisks on their love and joy and commitment and passion to their faith. A hundred percent.
4: I love the point about the survival and persistence of Judaism being tied to these sometimes very strict traditions, sure. even if my, even if we don't follow them because my husband's not been aware of them, coexisting alongside the fact that I, i part of the reason I'm so, I actually get very emotional about saying that my children are Jewish is because I've said this to other, it's like, fuck you, Hitler. Like every time I hear an anti-Semitic story, every time I'm listening to gay crashers, unsolicited (laughs) plug. every, like, until I married my husband, I didn't realize how real anti-Semitism is. I thought it was like a period piece. And the stories I hear from him and the things that are happening in the world. And every time I think that I have participated in my own little, probably flawed way to creating two more people on this earth who identify as Jewish, and want to continue whatever Jewish traditions resonate with them and they cling to, makes me feel like I've done something good.
1: Faith Silly, thank you for being here with us and, and for having this conversation and for letting us be, be part of your conversations that you're having at home. In, in
0: mazel tobs.
2: Liel, do you have a mazel this week? I do to friend of the show and friend of the world and former unorthodox guest, Bernard-Henri Lavie, who has an amazing, truly, I mean, it's very easy to be cynical about the stuff, but the movie is just so heartbreaking and important. It's called Why Ukraine? And it's really a searing documentary from someone who actually picked up and went there to the front lines very early on and then throughout the war. It's screening. As you hear this, if you hear this on Thursday, it's screening at the United Nations. It's free. You could register. You go to tabletmag.com. We have a a nice little ad for it on the the homepage. And you know what? Even if not, try to catch it somewhere later because it's really an important movie about a war that I really hope ends very soon. Stephanie Taylor-Butnick.
1: I have the biggest mazel tov to my grandpa, Grandpa Al, who turned 91 last weekend. He is the best and celebrating him even from afar is always a treat. So, Grandpa Al, we love you. Thanks for we listening all, to we the all program. This is
2: not just Stephanie. And yeah, thank you for listening to the program on, on the wireless. Grandpa Al. And my mazel
0: tov goes to the Stahl Anderson family, whose daughter, Rachel Anderson, celebrated her bat mitzvah becoming a Jewish adult last Saturday in shul. She rocked it.
2: It was amazing. So much honor
0: to the whole
2: mishpacha. By the way, what an amazing thing. If you turn Bar about Mitzvah on Parsha Bereishis, the first Parsha of the Bible, it's the easiest thing in the world because you don't have to say like, turn to page 360. Like, just open the book. It's there. It's the first word you see. Right. Open the book. (laughs)
0: Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show's hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sar Fredman Ader, Daron Ruskay, and Sam Hacker. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My Friendster account is active again, but I need to restock my friends, so come find me. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Please send us snail mail at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, one triple zero one. No rabbinic supervision this week because a rabbi whom we mentioned sometime in the last few weeks actually got mad at us and wrote us a note saying, in no way did I supervise that episode, nor would I lend my name to it. So we're now afraid, we're we're very scared to offer rabbinic supervision to someone who has not been pre-cleared. Obviously it is a humorous token of our appreciation for, or serving the Jewish people in whatever capacity. But let's go back to you guys sending in the names of your rabbis who you think will be honored to be named as the rabbinic supervisor of the week. You can email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and offer up your favorite rabbi or cantor for rabbinic supervision. And we come to you from the crisp autumn air of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.